Welcome, everyone, to my Easter podcast today. What a big day this is. We celebrate at Christmas the birth of Jesus Christ, and we celebrate again the rebirth of Jesus Christ with this special presentation today, which is on the resurrection. Hi, everyone. Sydney St. James. I still remember a small brick building just on the outside of Cassatt, Louisiana, about seven miles. It was the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. And on one Easter, I'd go when I was young and listen to my grandmother give her Eastern message, Easter message. In that particular situation, we also had an Easter egg hunt associated with it. And was it fun? And then the next year, we'd go back to Louisiana again. I lived in Eagle Lake, Texas at the time. We'd go back to Louisiana again, and we would attend the Progress Cumberland Presbyterian Church, where she alternated between the years, and that's located in Pleasant Hill. We also had an Easter egg hunt. Well, guess what? One particular year, I won the Golden Egg. And although there remain notes from many of her sermons and these red cheap notebooks that I've talked about on earlier summons from the 1900s, a few pages remain where she spoke of Good Friday and she spoke of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My grandmother's name was the Reverend Ada Slayton Bonds, the first ordained woman minister for the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, and even more so the sixth ordained minister ever to be ordained in the United States. Everything that she did each year into her, that she put into her Easter sermons was unbelievable. She would even practice with us at her home the night before. <laughs> and there was always one of the key messages she would preach every year. If your church is like most, you will see the highest number of visitors all year long, whether in person or nowadays virtually via YouTube Live or Facebook Live streaming. I know my church in Eagle Lake on Easter, on Sunday, it was standing room only. And remember, this was a little old small town no more than 3,500 people in it. And we had several churches of all denominations throughout the town, but yet every pew was full and the choir section up above was full. Oh, what a grand day that was. Uh, but anyhow, it's not just about the attendance at the church. My Easter podcast today matters because we are celebrating the most climatic event in all of human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As I share the story of the first Easter with you today, you will have an important opportunity to go out and tell non-believers why Jesus Christ's death and why his burial and why his resurrection meant so much to them. My Easter presentation is significant 
because of the opportunity to go and share the gospel. But Easter sermons tend to be more challenging because I have to come up each year, unlike fresh subject matter each week, I can't just repeat my podcast over and over and over each year or resubmit an older blog post. I need to develop a new way, a new way to engage my listening audience with the same core resurrection message I've often given. So strap in and get ready for something fresh, something meaningful, something extraordinary as we once again celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My story today, well, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Christian faith hasn't any hope to stand on, right? But if God, in fact, raised Jesus from the dead, Nothing else really matters, and no one can argue that Christianity isn't true. I know I said if, but, but hang in there. Follow me in my message today, and it will all become very clear to you. All Christians doubt their devotion from time to time, for whatever reason it might be. Plus, it's Easter. It's Easter Sunday. When I produce this podcast today that I'm presenting to you, and I know that I'm talking to non-believers out there. There are, believe it or not, they're listening. So it's an ideal time to help believers and non-believers understand now reliable the historical accounts of the res resurrection actually are. If this isn't the first time hearing my show, you already know I'm a history nut. I like to study history and then go and write what I want to talk about. Sam Bass, the Robin Hood of Texas, is one of those. I read all about Sam Bass before I even undertook writing my novels. I know I'm talking history now, especially when it was like 2,000 years ago, right? which takes into account more than one reading of each of the scriptures. I base my presentation today on those many readings. Remember, the first reading is what I call the reflection reading. Because sometimes the Bible, even though I use the King James Version and other versions that are out there, but it's difficult to read a scripture and know exactly what it means. So sometimes you just got to give it more thought and read it again and see what you just read. Then you go back again a third time and read it more slowly and look at each word as you interpret what you're reading. Because Christ's resurrection is at the hub of Christian faith, you can locate a variety of scriptures throughout the Bible, touching on the validity of the resurrection. However, for my podcast today, let's, let's just say it's best to narrow our focus to passages, highlighting eyewitnesses to the resurrection itself, and those who recorded the Gospels 
recorded their scriptures from listening to a story two times removed. That's right. They may have never even seen Jesus Christ one time, yet their scriptures are in the Bible talking about what they heard other people say, not necessarily what they witnessed with, with their own eyes. I sent you as first importance this information. First, Christ gave his life for our sins, right? No doubt. I think we can all agree on that. And that's according to the scriptures in the Bible. And then he was buried in a tomb, and a big round rock was pushed up in front of it. And then on the third day, he appeared in Sephras. And then he appeared to the 12 disciples. After that, he appeared in the flesh over 500 of the brothers and sisters simultaneously. Most of them were still living, though some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared in the flesh to James and all the rest of the apostles. And in John, 21st chapter, 24th verse, it says, This is the disciple who testified to these things. He was the one who jotted them down for all of history. We know that his testimony is not false. Right? Let me be, for just a moment, devil's advocate. Just a second now. One of the strongest arguments against the resurrection is that it wouldn't let people write about it if it really happened, right? So it had to really happen. So why aren't there any accounts of the outside of the Bible? Meaning people from the outside. Why aren't there any accounts from those people? This re reasoning assumes that the four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't count. Uh, not least they don't count as eyewitnesses' stories. Jesus' disciples were the most equipped to deliver a record of his ministry and of his resurrection, and they did. Most people believe a man called John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. He traveled with Paul and Barnabas. It's the thought that he got much of his eyewitness details of Jesus' ministry from Peter. So it's likely Mark's Gospel is Peter's record of his travels with Jesus. And John Mark simply wrote them down. The weight of knowledge suggests Matthew, Luke, and John wrote the Gospels with their names upon them. And some people who study the Bible debate the dates, but it seems they were likely written within the apostles' lifetimes. Many people would have been around to discredit these accounts if they weren't accurately written, or if someone could produce Jesus' body. If anyone found Jesus' body, it would completely discredit the narrative. 
that Jesus rose from the dead. So naturally, people argue that if Jesus' body wasn't in the followers in the tomb that day, his followers must have moved it, right? Or making the resurrection a total hoax. But wait, just one moment. That argument doesn't work. I don't want to get you too confused here, but it just doesn't work. Since the disciples had no expectation Jesus would rise from the dead, they had no need to invent a deception. The disciples weren't much different than most Jewish people back then. They believed Jesus would restore the kingdom back to Israel by toppling Rome's tyrannical rule. But, unfortunately, the disciples thought the kingdom's restoration, so to speak, ended when Jesus died. They were clearly confused about what to do next. And despite Jesus' numerous hints, he would come back from the dead. And the disciples still didn't understand he had had to die as seen in Matthew 16, 22 to 23. But Jesus' enemies were also listening. They sealed the cave and placed armed guards in front of it. And they heard Jesus say he would rise from the dead after three days. They were concerned with the disciples moving his body. And even if the disciples were listening enough to Jesus' hints along the way to think of this, and they were able to overpower the guards at the entrance and break the seal on the tomb, that leaves us with one other question. Why would so many people die for a lie? You know, church tradition holds that all the disciples were martyred, all except for John. And the early church writers of scriptures give more detailed descriptions of how they each lost their life. James, John's brother, is the only single apostle besides Judas, whose death is recorded in the Bible. In Acts 12, King Herod put him to death by the sword. Even when you set martyrdom aside, early Jesus' followers faced all sorts of persecution from both the Jewish leaders and the rulers in the Roman Empire. The authorities persecuted them because they thought Jesus was divine and resurrected from his death. They could have recanted at any time to bring it to a complete stop, but they didn't. They continued spreading the word of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, even though it cost each of them their lives. Throughout all of church's history, this has probably been one of the most powerful testaments to the very truth of Christianity. The more people prove they were willing to die for it, the more Christianity spread. 
Jesus' closest followers could have told the world. They simply made it all up and just avoided their deaths. But instead, they made it crystal clear they would rather die than turn their backs on Jesus Christ. Even, even as they faced death, they knew with all of their heart that Jesus' resurrection meant they could also overcome the burial place as they trusted in him. How many people saw Jesus Christ re uh, resurrected? 500 people? Some say yes. Paul wrote that Jesus appeared to others as solid proof of his resurrection. And he said, even if you don't believe me, I'm not alone. All of these many, many people also saw him in the flesh. This disagreement in his letter validated that others could support or discredit his claims about Jesus. For example, critics of Christianity may suggest that early Christians hallucinated the presence of Jesus. But Paul claimed that a crowd of more than 500 people saw him all at one time. So even if you want to argue they had a mass hallucination, are we really supposed to believe they all saw the same thing? So let me ask you another question. Why did Jesus need to die? I'm asking questions all the time. I ask questions throughout my novel, See the, Seeing the Power of God. I do this because I don't know why. I just ask questions all the time. Well, one of the most common questions people ask when listening to stories from the gospel like mine and others is why in all the world, in, in the entire world, did Jesus need to die? Why couldn't God just reconcile humanity to himself in another way? Confronting the cross and resurrection from this angle lets you share the good news back to Genesis in chapter 3, sin's entrance into our world, culminating in a brand new heaven and a brand new earth described in Revelation 21 in one of my ending podcasts in season two. You'll have to back up quite a ways to find that one, but it's out there. And at the same time, this is definitely one of the more familiar themes in Easter sermons. Ministers often focus on atonement, which is essential, but it's not the only reason the Bible tells us Jesus had to die. So first, we will cover the primary argument from atonement and then get along with some additional reasons as we continue. Let's, let us make a case why crucifixion and resurrection was necessary. Numerous scriptures in the Bible argue for the necessity of the cross to make a case for why 
the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection were necessary. We need to develop an, an argument that touches on the problem of sin, the inadequacy of laws, and how everything altered on that wooden cross. God presented his son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement by shedding his blood to be received by faith. He did this to validate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand totally, absolutely unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only for ours, but also for the entire world's sins. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly, absolutely save us from God's condemnation. And for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of Jesus Christ. So now we can rejoice. We can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Did sin taint God's perfection in creation? You know, everything God's done has been perfect, right? God always intended to have an absolutely perfect and mutually loving relationship with all the people that he created. So it's no coincidence that when God made Adam and Eve, he said his creation was, I use the exact words, very good. Hmm. Now this can be seen in Genesis, in chapter 1 and verse 31. But after Adam sinned, everything in the entire world is now changed. So the rest of the Bible centers on what God did to bring together the world to himself and make it perfect again. The law I spoke of earlier is a set of 613 commandments in the Old Testament. It told the Israelites what living in the right relationship with God really feels like. In a nutshell, it's meant doing good, not doing evil. So, when the Israelites made mistakes, they needed to sacrifice to restore that relationship. So sin always cost them something. Our sin pointed to a more significant problem, though. Sin isn't just a deed of rebellion. Our sinfulness impacted every single aspect of who we were, 
from our minds to our hearts. And as Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, the laws didn't go far enough to make us genuinely right with God. They also didn't provide a way to make us completely right or completely righteousness. Any accomplishment of our own or any amount of inherent goodness cannot make us good in God's sight. Therefore, the only single way to become righteous is if God gives it to us. This is found in Romans 3, verse 22. When sin came into the world, it ushered in a whole brand new era of death and a whole brand new era of decay. The law makes us aware of our sinful ways by showing us the symptoms, but it can cure us, absolutely. And regardless of the signs we exhibit or just how severe they are, we will all die as a result. Paul wrote in Romans 6.23, he put the words down that death is the consequence and the wages of our sin. So our rebellion against God earns death. Someone's death. However, that death doesn't necessarily need to be ours. That is why Jesus, who was sinless, could die in our place. Jesus Christ truly paid the price for our sins. When he sacrificed himself for our sins, God paid the penalty for our own transgressions, so we don't need to do so. Paul described it like this. God made him who he had zero sin to be sin for us, so in him we might become the righteousness of of God. Our Lord could only do this because he was sinless. Otherwise, his death would only have paid for our own sin. His divinity was the only reason he remained utterly sinless. It was like the multiplication of our sin by zero. If you've taken math, you know what the number would come out to be, right? It didn't matter how much evil we had or how many people there were. Jesus took every bit of it, every bit of it all. The wrong, the past, the present, and the future unto himself, leaving us with total righteousness. Jesus demonstrated the love he expects us to demonstrate too. In the Last Supper, which I did a couple of broadcasts before, Jesus sat down and he told his disciples of a new commandment. What was it? Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love 
one another. People can appreciate that we follow Jesus when they see us show others the kind of love he showed to us. But when Jesus spoke these words, he hadn't yet shown the greatest absolute love of all. In John 15, he told the disciples to love one another, but he added this by saying, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. With his sacrificial death upon the cross, Jesus demonstrated the most fantastic form of love, showing his disciples just how much he expects his followers and us to love others. Satan has been trying a long, long time sabotage God's created order throughout history. And this ultimate plan for doing so was a sin. Jesus entered humanity and he died high up, nailed to the cross to destroy the devil's doomed plan forever. And the one who does what's sinful is the devil because the devil has been sinning from the very beginning of time. And the Son of God appeared to destroy the devil's work. Oddly, however, Satan thought that by killing Jesus, ha, he would use sin to unravel God's plan. And Jesus was supposed to restore God's kingdom on earth. So killing him would prevent God's kingdom from being fully and absolutely restored. But Jesus' death was the happening that set that restoration in progress, set it in motion, got it going. And sometimes I have to ask myself, why does the resurrection really matter? That's because our faith centers on that resurrection. This was brought to my attention by my good friend Deanna at a social function. Paul provided us with a powerful explanation of this. Without the first Easter Sunday sin would have the last laugh and we'd be stuck in it like quicksand forever and ever. We could never restore our connection with God on our own because the cost of our own sin was far too high for us to pay. 1 Corinthians 15 is jam-packed with material to build a case for why the resurrection isn't just crucial to Christians, but the entire basis of our faith. But one passage in particular will be helpful for a presentation about the significance of the resurrection. And here it is. But if it is preached, Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you sit there, right where you're at right now, and say, there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ hasn't been raised, I'm preaching to everyone. And our faith is useless. But more than that, we're then found to be false witnesses of God for we've test about, testified about God, about his raising Christ from the dead. But he didn't raise him if the dead were not raised. Christ hasn't been raised if the dead aren't raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile. You are still living in your own sins. So then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost forever. Therefore, if only we have hope in Christ for this life, we are the most likely to be pitied. Without Easter's victory, we are absolutely lying about God Almighty. Paul calls us false witnesses of God without the resurrection. We are liars. Worst even yet, Jesus is too. He told us this to those following him many times that the crypt would never hold him. Christianity is an absolute lie without Jesus' resurrection. It's a must, an absolute must. In conclusion today, our eternity would be hopeless without Jesus' resurrection. Let me emphasize that God's plan in putting creation back together hinged totally, absolutely 100% on the resurrection of his son, Christ defeated death. Why? So we could also defeat death. Since Jesus arose from the dead on the third day, God will no doubt make us new again. It's the wish of the gospel, and it's the wish of the heart of my Christian message to everyone today on this very special Easter weekend. Just as we now, like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. What I'm saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies can't inherit the kingdom of God. It just can't happen. These dying bodies that we have cannot inherit what will last forever. But let me reveal to you a wonderful, totally, absolutely greatest secret of all time. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet that Gabriel blows is blown. When that trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to life again, forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never, ever die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. 
Today, while I was rehearsing my final part of my Easter series, The Resurrection, my wife came up to, during the recording to the studio door, holding a handkerchief. Yes, I had water in my eyes for the third time when I got to the music track for each of these podcasts, of which you're not hearing actually during my podcast because all these fancy algorithms on Facebook and YouTube and whatnot says copyright infringement. So I couldn't play them all for you, but you'll find them down in the section below, the ones that brought water to my eyes. And yes, I did. I looked up at her and I gently nodded my head. Listening to the music is only part of what I do. When I listen to those songs, I close my eyes and I feel what the music is saying. The one in particular is called the Easter Hallelujah. And if you get in a closed space by yourself and you close your eyes, you lean back in your chair and listen to that song, it will move you like no other song will. And I can't help it but get emotional when, when I listen to these songs. Finally again, my wife said, but it's all good. Why? Because I've got Jesus in my heart. That's what she loves about me. Go figure, right? But start playing the song. Go find it out on YouTube. It's called Hallelujah Easter. Today I'll end my podcast with one big loud hallelujah and hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you have enjoyed this final part of my Easter series today and will join me next week as we will talk about the love affair between Samson and Delilah. And if you enjoyed my message today, please, a friendly review, you can see it in the comments below or write a comment. Make sure you hit the little bell or a little heart to say you like it. And also be sure to subscribe and you'll get more podcast coming your way each and every time that I make them. So in closing, as I always do on this Easter Sunday, thanks for joining me and I will see you later, alligator. <laughs>